This is the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places, events and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back to the London smog. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering so many different places across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now to this week's podcast. The Great Smog of London, or Great Smog of 1952, was a severe air pollution event that affected London in December 1952. A period of unusually cold weather, combined with an anti-cyclone and windless conditions, collected airborne pollutants, mostly arising from the use of coal, to form a thick layer of smog over the city. It lasted from Friday the 5th of December to Tuesday the 9th of December 1952, then dispersed quickly when the weather changed. The smog caused major disruption by reducing visibility and even penetrating indoor areas, far more severely than previous smog events called P-supers. Government medical reports in the weeks following the event estimated that up to 4,000 people had died as a direct result of the smog, and 100,000 more were made ill by the smog's effects on the human respiratory tract. More recent research suggests that the total number of fatalities was considerably greater, with estimates between 10 and 12,000 deaths. London's poor air quality had been a problem since at least the 13th century. The diarist John Evelyn had written about the inconvenience of the air and smog of London in his first ever book written about air pollution in 1661. However, the Great Smog was many times worse than anything the city had experienced before. It is thought to be the worst air pollution event in the history of the United Kingdom, and the most significant for its effects on environmental research, government regulation and public awareness of the relationship between air quality and health. It led to several changes in practices and regulations, including the Clean Air Act of 1956. A period of unusually cold weather preceding and during the Great Smog led Londoners to burn much more coal than usual to keep themselves warm, while better quality hard coals tended to be exported to pay off World War II debts, post-war domestic coal tended to be a relatively low-grade, sulfurous variety called nutty slack, which increased the amount of sulfur dioxide in the smoke. There were also numerous coal-fired electric power stations in Greater London area, including Fulham, Battersea, Bankside, Greenwich and Kingston-upon-Thames, all of which added to the pollution. According to the UK's Met Office, the following pollutants were emitted each day during the smoggy period. 1,000 tonnes of smoke particles, 140 tonnes of hydrochloric acid, 14 tonnes of fluorine compounds and 370 tonnes of sulphur dioxide, which may have been converted to 800 tonnes of sulphuric acid. The relatively large size of the water droplets in the London fog allowed for the production of sulphates without the acidity of the liquid rising high enough to stop the reaction and for the resultant dilute acid to become concentrated when the fog was burned away by the sun. Research suggests that additional pollution prevention systems fitted at Battersea worsened the air quality. Flue gas washing reduced the temperature of the flue gases so they did not rise 
but instead slumped to ground level, causing a local nuisance. Additionally, there was pollution and smoke from vehicle exhausts, particularly from steam locomotives and diesel-fueled buses, which had replaced the recently abandoned electric tram system. Other industrial and commercial sources also contributed to the air pollution. On the 4th of December 1952, an anti-cyclone settled over a windless London, causing a temperature inversion, with relatively cool, stagnant air trapped under a layer of warmer air. The resultant fog, mixed with smoke from home and industrial chimneys, particulates such as those coming from motor and vehicle exhausts and other pollutants such as sulfur dioxide, formed a persistent smog, which blanketed the capital the following day. The presence of tarry particles and soot gave the smog its yellow-black color, hence the nickname Pea Super. The absence of significant wind prevented its dispersal and allowed an unprecedented accumulation of pollutants. Although the event is now widely described as the London smog, air pollution, air pollution, in fact, extended far beyond the capital. According to E.T. Wilkins of the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, whose measurements would make clear the connection between smoke, sulfur dioxide and rising deaths, fog, white mist or grimy smog covered most of the parts of the British Isles, while in London and the Thames Valley, fog or smog covered upwards of 1,000 square miles. However, it was in London that the smog's effects were the greatest. There was no panic, as London was infamous for its fog. However, this one was denser and longer-lasting than any previous pea super. Visibility was reduced to a few meters, with one visitor stating it was like you were blind, rendering driving difficult or at times impossible. Public transport ceased, apart from the London Underground and the ambulance service stopped, forcing individuals to transport themselves to hospitals. The smog was so dense that it even seeped indoors, resulting in the cancellation or abandonment of concerts and film screenings, as visibility decreased in large enclosed spaces and stages and screens became harder to see from the seats. Outdoor sports events were also cancelled. In the inner London suburbs and away from town centres, there was no disturbance by moving traffic to thin out dense fog in the back streets. As a result, visibility could be down to a metre or so in the daytime. Walking out of doors became a matter of shuffling to feel for potential obstacles, such as curbs. This was made even worse at night, since each back street lamp was fitted with an incandescent light bulb, which gave no penetrating light onto the pavement for pedestrians to see their feet or even a lamppost. Fog-penetrating fluorescent lamps did not become widely available until later in the 1950s. Smog masks were worn by those who were able to purchase them from chemists. In the weeks that ensued, Statistics compiled by medical services found that the fog had killed 4,000 people. Many of the victims were very young or elderly, or had pre-existing respiratory or cardiovascular problems. In February 1953, Marcus Lipton suggested in the House of Commons that the fog had caused 6,000 deaths and that 25,000 more people had claimed sickness benefits in London during that period. Mortality remained elevated for months after the fog. A preliminary report, never finalized, blamed those deaths on an influenza epidemic. Emerging evidence revealed that only a fraction of the deaths could be from influenza. E.T. Wilkins, who, as officer in charge of atmospheric pollution at the government's Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, was effectively the UK's top pollution expert at the time, plotted a chart of elevated death rates for the period from December 1952 to March 1953, and found that there had been an additional 8,000 deaths beyond those initially counted, making 12,000 in total. Most of the deaths were caused by respiratory tract infections, 
from hypoxia and as a result of mechanical obstruction of the air passages by pus arising from lung infections caused by the smog. The lung infections were mainly bronchial pneumonia or acute bronchitis, superimposed upon chronic bronchitis. Research published in 2004 suggests that the number of fatalities was about 12,000, around three to four times greater than the official government total at the time, but very close to the figure Wilkins had originally estimated. In the long term, individuals who were infants at the time of the smog ended up having lower intelligence or worse respiratory health than their peers. Environmental legislation since 1952, such as the City of London Various Powers Act 1954, and the Clean Air Acts of 1956 and 1968 led to a reduction in air pollution. Financial incentives were offered to householders to replace open coal fires with alternatives, such as installing gas fires, or for those who preferred to burn coke instead, which produces minimal smoke. Central heating, using gas, electricity, oil or permitted solid fuel, was rare in most dwellings at that time, and not finding favour until the late 1960s onwards. Despite improvements, insufficient progress had been made to prevent one more further smog, approximately 10 years later, in early December 1962. So, I hope you've enjoyed our look at the Great London Smog, one of those great mysteries that sort of hangs over 1952. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, londonvisited.co.uk, or through our social media. It really is that easy. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you soon for the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.